Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, live on Sirius XM Channel 111 every weekday at noon East. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. It is GOP debate day in America, except the guy who is 30 to 40 points up won't be there. So what will happen tonight and will any of it matter? We'll see in just a few hours as the second Republican presidential debate gets underway this evening at Reagan National Library in California. In the meantime, we have a lot to get to, including President Biden spending uh, like two minutes at least on the UAW picket line before jetting off to a fundraiser. Of course, many on the left reacting like the second coming happened last night. Plus his dog biting the 11th person, yet another Secret Service agent gets bitten by commander, and Joe Biden doesn't seem to give two dams about what's happening to these Secret Service agents around. It's ridiculous. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's ARKseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. Arcseedkits.com. Today, two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> Is that like a coffee saying? I'm not sure. What is that? Peanut butter and jelly? A fifth column co-host plus an EJ. Joining us now, now Matt Welsh of the Fifth Column Podcast and editor-at-large for Reason and Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour. Matt, Emily, great to have you here. How are you doing? Doing great. Hi, Megan. Good to see you, Megan. Who's the peanut butter and who's the jelly? <laughs> Matt's the peanut butter. Thank you. <laughs> Millennials can't Thank eat you. peanut butter. We have peanut allergies. That's true. <laughs> okay, so do do we care about tonight? Like, I am mildly interested. I'm going to say like, I'll probably watch some of it. I'll definitely watch the highlights. But it does feel a little like you know the miscongeniality contest at this point. Am I am I wrong, Emily? 
No, not at all. I mean, again, what is going to change substantially at a debate where the front runner who continues, by the way, to open his, his lead grows uh, over time? You know, there might be some dips here or there if you look at the RCP average, but he's been expanding his lead over the other candidates and he's up so much. I mean, we're talking double, double digits, right? We're talking he's he's up by what, 40 points. Uh, so as long as he's not there, it really, I mean, you're jockeying for second place, you're jockeying for third place, which matters a lot if you're down by single digits. It, it might matter a lot if Iowa was down to five points, uh, but it's not. So again, we're, we're looking at a VP tryout for the most part. It's like at the JV stage at 2016, where you literally had a JV stage, five people you know, that were not mm-hmm. able to make the first stage. That's what this entire debate is. The reason Matt Walsh, I, Walsh, I think it, it's Walsh is a different Matt. I always do that. Matt Welsh, not to be confused right. with Matt Walsh. Um, the reason it is interesting, uh, and and I would definitely host a debate like I mean, even though it's the B team, the reason it's interesting is number one, something could happen to Trump. You know, putting aside the fact that he's seventy-seven years old, um, something could happen to him, like he could be locked up <laughs> before November twenty twenty-four. Incredibly. It's a realistic possibility. I don't think it will happen. But, you know, I was talking to Mark Levin last week and I was saying that's not likely to happen, you know, that he could actually get tried, that he could get convicted and that somebody would throw him in jail before he exhausts the appeal in the event that that happens. And and he reminded me, look at the judges that we're dealing with here. Look at Judge Chuckin in Washington, D.C. You can tell this woman hates Trump. Look at Fannie Willis down in Atlanta. She's already trying to put this thing on a fast track. Um, that's not going to be a favorable jury. I, so it is possible that Trump could be in jail. I do think that's going to change his polling numbers. <laughs> I, it's come to that. It's like the comments about the gold star families, that's going to change. No, the comments nope. about what, whatever, that, that judge being a, Hispan- a racist just because he's Hispanic. No, did not. But like actually convicted and sitting in a prison, Matt, Matt, that could change things. And therefore, the GOP debate actually does matter could change things. Uh, we've all lost confidence about every scenario in which uh, affection for Trump is lessened in the Republican Party, uh, which is interesting on itself. What I'm fascinated by is that the last debate, I presumed because of the dynamics that both of you guys are talking about, um, that no one would pay attention to it. But it actually got pretty good ratings. I mean, Trump was counter-programming with Tucker Carlson and still a lot of people tuned in. So what were they doing? I'm not exactly sure uh, because, uh, yes, Trump has widened his lead since then. And most everyone else has stayed the same except for Nikki Haley. She kind of uh, has almost doubled her support. In the meantime, she had a very good debate performance. So she might, you know, have another good debate performance and become the uh, largest person in the very small lane of kind of elected normie officials who don't like Trump. Um, that is a 15% lane. Um, so if she somehow manages to elbow out Mike Pence and Chris Christie and Tim Scott and everybody else, she might get all the way up to maybe 15%. There has to be someone who can uh, attract Trump supporters. People are kind of in denial about well, what about what Vivek? Ex- v- Vivek got a little bump after the first debate and a he bump. attracts Trump supporters. Absolutely. So like if you look at Vivek and Trump and Ron DeSantis as a as a block and DeSantis is the only one who has a foot in kind of both camps. He's an elected normie official on one level, but he also can plausibly attract some MAGA uh, support. Um, Those three guys in every single poll, with the exception of New Hampshire, are going to get 75 percent of the vote. 
Um, so it has to probably come from from one of those three people. DeSantis has been in free fall since basically January. Uh, maybe he has bottomed out. So I think he definitely has the most at stake today. And he's the one who's going to compete hardest or has the biggest uh, chance of success in Iowa, which can still presumably slingshot people. But precisely because he's in this weird spot, because he's plausible to both camps, that makes him kind of unattractive as a person. Uh, which is to say he's aware consciously, you can see it on his face, that he is trying to run against Trump while still getting some of Trump's support. And it makes him awkward. It makes him seem less like his own man uh, uh, in direct contrast to the way that he actually governs Florida, where he see, seems supremely confident. So he has a lot to gain, uh, but also he's in the really awkward spot. So I guess tonight we'll see if he's able to figure out a way to uh, come out not looking awkward in that spot and and chip away at some of Trump's uh, support. But I don't I wouldn't bet on it. No, it's so tricky. And part of what's interesting about watching these debates is the trickiness of it. Right. Like that's it's kind of interesting and, and entertaining, frankly. Like, how are they going to navigate? I don't really care what, you know, Doug Burgum does. I think he's interesting just because he's espousing normal Republican ideas. And it's like good to be reminded that not not all Republicans, you know, are in agreement on every issue. And it's good to hear different points of view, you know, coming in from the more conservative side, the more traditionalist side, the traditionalist side, the more populist side, you know, MAGA Trump. I like hearing that. That's that's good. And it's good, I think, for the country, including Democrats and independents, to hear Republicans up there talking about their ideas and why they would work. I think that's an advantage to Team Red over Joe Biden. It's it's good for the Republicans. Now, if they get really nasty, maybe maybe not right with one another, but it is entertaining. Um, I'll say this. The latest poll we're just looking at CBS News poll, uh, Trump leading in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, by 30 points over DeSantis and 37 points over DeSantis, who's in second position in both of those, according to the CBS poll. Right. So latest CBS out of Iowa, Trump 51, DeSantis is in two at 21. Uh, Latest out of New Hampshire. Trump 50, DeSantis 13. Nikki Haley's right behind him at 11. She's right behind DeSantis in Iowa too, according to this poll. So anyway, the lead is huge, okay? Um, However, what's interesting here is they say in both states, most voters are still considering multiple candidates. In fact, just a fifth in Iowa and a quarter in New Hampshire are considering Trump and no one else. So the vast majority of the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire are considering somebody other than Trump, even if they like Trump. So that's interesting. That's there's some, you know, gleam of hope for these GOPers tonight. And these voters, they say, um, are more likely to say they are supporting Trump with some reservations in both states. Only Trump voters, you know, the people who will only vote for Donald Trump are outnumbered by the one third of the electorate who are not considering Trump at all. So there are more never Trumpers in each of these states than there are only Trumpers. And again, they are saying most voters in Iowa and New Hampshire are still considering someone other than Trump. So I see, Emily, what the point is tonight. They're looking at this same data saying, so you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) 
Well, and they're they're not entirely wrong because they know other people around them have reservations about Donald Trump. And I think it partially explains what you mentioned earlier about why the ratings were higher than some people, including myself, actually, where they expected them to be in the first debate. Now, of course, this isn't the first debate, so it's not the spectacle, but there's so much interesting stuff happening with the dynamics back and forth. It's why I think all of us wish that Donald Trump were a part of it because it's healthy to see this contrast and to argue it out. But this all is exactly why he's not. To your point, Megan, it's an unnecessary risk for, for him. And uh, on, on the one hand, he it's impossible for him to lose debates because he just, like Shane Gillis says, will like turn to Rand Paul and be like, you're ugly. <laughs> that's, his, that's his debate. And you just can't lose at that game. Uh, but on the other hand, there's really no reason for him to you know, strategically look like he's on their uh, on their level. It just makes more sense for him to totally stay out of the fray, do his own events that he can control. Uh, the other interesting thing, who's watching these? Donors. And where the money goes is going to make a difference in that sort of second place lane. And they are really, they, they, after that first debate, there was a lot of reporting that people who were DeSantis curious, Tim Scott curious, then turned and gave money to Nikki Haley or decided yeah. to stop giving money to Ron DeSantis. And so you're, ba- you're balancing on the one hand, wanting to appeal to those Trump voters with reservations, but on the other hand, needing to appeal to the donor class that is totally in tension with those Trump voters that just have reservations about him personally. Mm, I would also that's a good point. It, uh, Go ahead, Matt. I would I would take those polls that you cited with uh, a little bit of a grain of salt because they remind me a lot of the polls that you see all the time and you'll see in this cycle too of like large numbers of Americans, sometimes a majority, uh, say, say that they are uh, willing to entertain the possibility of voting for a third party. I'm someone who's covered third party candidates for a quarter century, so I'm aware of this. Um, Americans are third partyists, you know, in the streets, but not in the sheets, I guess is the, is the way the phrase goes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. When it, when hope, it comes down to it, they, <laughs> they, uh, they, will, uh, they will go back to a more predictable place. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who say, no, no, I definitely going to think about other candidates besides Trump. But then when push comes to shove, it's usually what happens to Trump is that anytime he's really in the news, he's in the crosshairs of the legal system or something else, uh, people, Republicans will, uh, in at least in the presidential primary, will flock toward him, not away from him. Because part of his selling proposition from the very beginning was the way he makes uh, the media mad. He makes the left mad. And that is a, a value proposition. So it's sort of this little it cycle. Uh, it is. Um, and I mean, people react to politics emotionally in, in many senses. And uh, and so it just helps. Uh, we haven't yet seen the, the place we did for a moment during the Access Hollywood tapes in the late 2016 and October 2016. I think it was that was sort of a micro moment when the reason that everyone was getting mad at Trump was actually affecting his poll numbers. And we for, we you know, memory hold it now, but I think what 10 senators republican senators at that time withdrew their support for trump like it was a big problem for a week and a half for donald trump but then uh, support ended up rallying for him and since then there haven't been many external factors that have dulled republican uh, uh willingness to vote for him let's say if not uh quite a super open fondness so uh you know it's it's going to be hard for there to be any extraneous factor, I think that will that will kick people off. I think it's more internally to him. If he decides that he's really going to run and be in it to win it, um, does he have the energy to do it? He's got to spend a lot of energy fighting uh, criminal uh, activity right now and 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 uh, legal problems. So uh, well, that's I think the it's- thing. So be, it, like realistically, and just to throw a couple numbers at you uh, before I get to my realistically ending, um, there was another poll just out, Morning Consult, 
shows Trump up. This is just a, a national poll shows Trump up 43 points over his next closest competitor, who is DeSantis, 58 to 15, 43 points. My God, 58 to 15. That is just it's insurmountable unless something absolutely devastating Mm -hmm. happens to Trump. And so what I was going to say a moment ago was the thing about the theory that, you know, I I discussed with Mark Levin, right, that he actually could be in jail uh, at the time of the election or shortly before the election. That all would happen post Iowa, post New Hampshire, post Super Tuesday. So we are down a path at that point. Like, I don't even know if playing the long game is a realistic option for these Republicans who are going to be on the stage in Simi Valley tonight, Emily, because the, <laughs> these decisions get made this winter into this early spring about who the Republicans are going to go for. The trials will not be done. I realize she wants a trial, Fannie Willis, like March 4th and so on. But it, it, realistically, best case scenario for these rabid prosecutors, maybe they get, they get maybe they get him in jail by June. Well, we won't have had a nominating contest by them, but we will have had votes in all of the major states. We will know who the nominee is going to be. So practic- as a practical matter, I really don't know how it could work. And I think that's a big question for Democrats right now, too. And I actually think that's why you see both Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis agreeing to debate each other on Fox News, because they both want to set themselves up in this lane. And I would be curious to be a fly on the wall at the RNC and the DNC as they're like sort of digging through what I imagine are like bylines and having their lawyers pour over what happens in the case of a serious problem, um, a health problem, a prison problem. By the way, there's it's, it's possible there's something out there that prosecutors are working on, that the, the Justice Department is working on as it relates to Donald Trump, or that some attorney general is working on as it relates to Trump, that would result in more immediate action. It's hard to say. We don't know. But certainly we've seen different things crop up. So it, it's just genuinely difficult to say. And I'm sure both parties right now are actually trying to figure out what the avenue is should something happen come June of 2024. And again, I think that's why you see both Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis and the people who are now fighting to overtake Ron DeSantis. And it's just this like cannibalism to see who can take Ron DeSantis down a peg, create themselves as the heir apparent, uh, which I don't know if it's possible because they're all sort of running in similar lanes, except for Mike Pence. Um, They're they're trying to do that because for the exact reason you mentioned, nobody really understands what happens when you get a free for all because something happened to the leading candidate after the majority of primary votes are cast. You know, I want to tell you guys that we're actually taking a deep dive into all of this right now, and we're going to be doing a show in about a week. Um, you know, we're making sure we've got all our facts on exactly how each person could be replaced. How would it work if it's Trump or Biden? How, if it needs to happen, how could it happen? How late in the process could it happen? Um, and what are each of these teams, DNC and RNC, actually doing to prepare for it? So I'm really looking forward to that. I asked my team to get this ready a couple of weeks ago, and we've been we've been working hard on it. So we're, we're, we are going to take a deep dive into how, how, because for the first time that I can remember, it is a realistic possibility that they're going to need to replace one and possibly both of the guys who get nominated or who win the early nominating contests and who have emerged as the one to be nominated with the most primary and caucus votes. It's crazy. Matt Walsh is crazy. But let's let's talk about Joe Biden, because there, every day we get new reports about his his failing 
I don't know if I guess it is health, but just, you know, it, it, the loss of what's the, what's the noun for being robust, you know, like the, the loss of vigor, the loss of verve, the loss of the capability to put two sentences together without failing to make sense or saying something racist. Um, that's him these days. And you can see his team is on eggshells. And now it's emerging on the, on the heels of these polls, which we saw earlier this week, two, two polls, NBC News and ABC News, three quarters of the electorate believe he is too old to do a second term. Almost two thirds of Democrats want someone else. Those are the realities. They're not, those are not outliers. Those are backed up by repeated polls. The American electorate thinks he's too old for the job, whether it's his age or his infirmity. A far lower number think Trump is too old, but over 50% think he's too old, too old, too old, too. But they look at Joe Biden and they know he can't do it, Matt. I think we all know he cannot do it. So the, the left is pretending that he can because they're terrified of Trump. This is all happening as Axios drops this little report yesterday that kind of puts a fine point on it about how now he's switched to just sneakers. You know how like your mom at this point, I'm 52, but so it's like my mom. But like when I was a little younger, my Nana, she died at 101, God bless her. But like when she got into like the eight late 80s, she switched over to the trainer, you know, the sneaker. She, there was no more little flats or shoes, certainly not high heels for her. My mom's now in that category. I'm sure I'll wind up there eventually. He's in the trainers. He's in the sneakers now, our president. No more shoes for Joe Biden. We already did the story on how he's only using the short steps to get on Air Force One in the belly of the plane. His staff is on complete alert for any sandbags used in every television setting to hold down the mic stands and the light stands. It's a safety matter. That's why they do that. Those things fall on you. You're dead. You get a gash in the middle of the forehead at a minimum. But now they can't because he tripped over one. And the and then there, the, uh, there's a deep dive in the precautions that they're taking, the physical therapy they're putting him through, Matt, to make sure he doesn't fall and to try to improve his balance. Axios reporting that his doctor has recommended exercise for balance, which he calls proprioceptive maintenance maneuvers. Um, Then to Axios's credit, they go to Professor James Gordon, associate dean and chair of the physical therapy department at USC, who says, I have never heard of that term. I do not know what (laughs) proprioceptive maintenance maneuvers is. This is not a clinical thing. That is not a thing. Uh, but the point is, they're terrified he's going to fall. And with that fall will come the downing of any chance of the Democrats holding on to the White House. There are um, the the five alarm fire in the polls right now is not even the outlier from the other week that Trump was ahead 10 points in the head to head matchup. Um, but he's been at basically parity. They've been 50 50 in these matchups. But here's the thing that's in all of these polls. Trump is leading Biden among independents that I would not have ever really bet on because Trump beat Hillary Clinton, maybe by a percentage point among independents back in 2016. And from that moment forward, that was the last time that even a plurality of independents favored Donald Trump because they were appalled by his behavior and some of his actions and et cetera. And I thought that that would stick because you can't woo them back. It he hasn't necessarily wooed them back. But independents have soured so completely on Joe Biden, and they see him more often than they see Donald Trump. Uh, he's in office. You can watch him stumbling around and figuring out which way not to walk after he 
gives a speech in the podium and not remembering to shake the hand of the foreign dignitary, just all of the things. My parents are 83. Um, uh, one might vote Republican more, one might vote for Democrat uh, for um, their, you know, varying states of their own kind of cognition. Both of them say, my God, he's too old. <laughs> and, and he's not as old as my dad uh, in terms of, of where he's at. But like they can reckon game recognize game in this case. And and what and when they don't have game, um, that is terrible for Biden. And it should induce all kinds of panic among Democrats because you're not going to get that back. And let's remember, why did Biden win last time anyways? Is it because Americans like suddenly tapped into this long gestating affection for Joe Biden, who's been trying to run for president since I was about 16 years old and I'm 55? Um, uh, no, it's because they thought he could win. They needed to they needed someone who seemed normal enough to beat Trump and that just figured out, OK, look, Joe's been around forever. He talks about the lunch bucket and tells weird stories about Scranton that probably aren't true. But uh, he seems like a normie. He can win, unlike you know, uh, Beto O'Rourke or somebody. Uh, so that works. And that's great until the moment when you stop thinking he can win. And then his entire value proposition evaporates. There's a, an attempt right now. Franklin Four has a new book out um, that wants to posit him as this sort of last politician. And he's a lot, you know, everyone underrated him, but he's really great and all this. Um, Americans are not going to buy that. He won president because they thought that he could win. And now that they know or suspect that he can't, that's going to collapse. Democrats are going to have a come to Jesus moment uh, at some point during this campaign. Gavin Newsom does every morning when he kisses himself in the mirror. Um, and you can bet that he's going to do whatever he can to uh, to get there. But uh, it looks really, really bad for Joe Biden right now. It does. And even you, you say the come to Jesus moment, we heard James Carville making headlines yesterday because he went on Bill Maher's podcast and they had, you know, these are both Democrats. Bill Maher is a Democrat. He's not woke, which is why a lot of us love listening to those bits. But he is a Democrat. And he and I talked about this. I've gone on his show a few times. Um, and he said, you know, you seem kind of like me, like a person without a party. And th this is I always laugh. Emily, when people call me a rhino and I'm like, if you only knew not not even in name. Not not even Republican <laughs> rhinos, Republican in name only, not even a name. Hate to tell you, not a Republican. I'm a registered independent. And thank God I wake up every day saying, thank God, thank God I didn't <laughs> throw my lot in with either one of these parties. I don't I will never wear a team jersey of either one of these. Yes, my sensibilities are more aligned with the Republicans, but many times they're not. And I'm just thrilled to be in my own little lane. Anyway, Bill Maher, um, James Carville who I love listening to. I love James Carville. He's he's come in this show, too. You know, we don't agree politically, but I I think he's a valuable voice in America. And he is sounding the alarm as, you know, the, a guy who got Bill Clinton elected as somebody who knows what he's talking about. Here he is. Let's assume the election was November the 3rd of this year. Oh, and and they said the candidates are Joe, Joe Biden, the Democrat, Donald Trump, the Republican, uh, Joe Manchin and Larry Hogan, no labels, and Cornell West. Mm. Trump would be a betting favorite. Yes. If I told you I totally. would give you even money, you would not take that bet. All right? Um, and so somebody better wake the fuck up. He <laughs> <laughs> gets right to it. He's got it, EJ. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, again, this is Gavin Newsom, and it's interesting that you have the governor of California debating the second 
Republican presidential candidate uh, on national television, on cable television, because there are establishment Democrats, we now know, thanks to all kinds of reporting, who are panicking for all of the reasons you and Matt just laid out, which is that the value proposition of Joe Biden was that he could ride both lanes. He could sort of uh, wink and nod at the woke lane while also sort of being coded as somebody who just privately did not like the woke lane and was going to hold them at bay, while also being this kind of old school you know, he was on the UAW picket line yesterday for, as you mentioned, a couple minutes and then went to a fundraiser. He's able to do both of those things. And uh, that's what everyone saw is this, this makes him electable. And at the very least, it makes him more electable than somebody like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who they feel like has steered fully into one lane or the other. So with that gone, it means there's going to be some organizing behind the scenes because it's a it's total panic mode. Um, and w- James Carville was one of the people in 2016, fall of 2016, uh, was looking at what was happening and like Bill Clinton sort of realized there was uh, a problem, a cultural gap for Democrats. And that's another big issue for them. There's a lot of media about if not Trump, then who? Because DeSantis originally seemed like somebody who was the only person that could do it. He was plowing this new lane. Republicans are reportedly trying to get Glenn Youngkin to win or to run because they think he can do it, too, in a way that Ron DeSantis hasn't. Well, they should start having that conversation about Democrats, because if not Joe Biden, who is it one of the people that has come out and put their pronouns in their Twitter bio? Is it one of the people who has uh, done has gone all in on abolish ICE, defund the police uh, and is going to have to atone? for that on the campaign trail, good luck. Uh, And Democrats haven't really had to reckon with that either. And if Gavin Newsom is your best bet, you are in trouble nationally. Mm -hmm. I've got, and we'll get into this when we do our rundown on how they could replace, you know, the guys that win. I got, I like Glenn Youngkin a lot. I'd vote for him. I'd vote for him for anything. But is Cora Maga ever going to vote for Glenn Youngkin? I mean, I actually hadn't looked that deeply into his background, but he's a Carlisle group guy. He's like yeah. made $500 million. He's He makes Mitt Romney look like he failed in business, right? With Bain <laughs> Capital. Um, I don't see He also Maga. signed a BLM letter. When he was at Carlisle Group, this has not gotten a lot of attention, but he signed like a donation to BLM when he was at the oh, Carlisle God. Group. So yeah. All right. <laughs> so that's that's going to come back to haunt him. And just Core Maga, they're very suspicious of these big corporations uh, and how they look down on the working class. They want to exploit them, but they, you know, for votes and and for their work, but how they look down on them and they're part of the elites. And Youngkin is definitely an elite. Again, I mean, I'd vote for him, but like, I just don't see somebody like that wresting anything away from Trump. But I guess the thought is if Trump only has a core, you know, true, true believers, 30% of the party, and some, you know, 50 to 70 percent of the party is like, I like him, but I'm open minded. Could he be the one to consolidate? You know, that's the thing, Matt Walsh, because why, why do I keep doing it? Welsh, Welsh. It's I, I Welsh. Matt Walsh is over on the day. <laughs> He's on the Daily Wire. trying to figure out what a woman is one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even ask for our pronouns. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so anyway, um, if you look at like the numbers, if all the candidates got behind one, if all the voters got behind one person other than Trump, like let's say tonight, they they surprise us all. They go out on the stage in Simi Valley and they say, we have an announcement to make that the six or seven of us who are up here, the only one who didn't make the dance is Asa Hutchinson. The, the surprise announcement is we're all dropping out and we're all putting our support behind Nikki Haley. 
Okay, let's just take one. She's she's rising. She's right by DeSantis in all the polls. Then it would be on. Then we actually might have a horse race because the non-Trump vote, if you add up all the percentages of Haley, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, you know, Christie, Pence, is big. It's still behind the Trump vote, but it's big. So so maybe you'd have something. And that's what they're thinking, I think, with Glenn Youngkin. If, if well, they're not going to do that tonight. So I think the thinking in Republican circles is underdog comes in to save the day. He hasn't been in the fray. He hasn't been taking shots at anybody. He's like, I'm doing it because my country needs me because Trump's sitting in jail or whatever it is. I will serve. I'm reluctant. I love MAGA. I love establishment. Um, I love money. <laughs> and I will serve. Well, my job is, is that beach. a winning plan? <laughs> uh, no. I mean, there's no... The only reason Glenn Youngkin is even a thought for anyone is because uh, Ron DeSantis didn't do as well as was hoped by a lot of people. It's the same lane. The only I mean, it's they were competent uh, and to the point of uh, like surprise uh, levels of effectiveness in running uh, uh, and managing the school's issue during COVID. That's what they both did especially well. Uh, DeSantis did even more because he's had a lot longer uh, time in office than Youngkin has. Um, and uh, uh, Florida is more of a Republican state, especially now. And DeSantis is self-pushed it that way. Virginia has been more of a Democratic state, so it was more of a surprise that he won. But there's nothing that Glenn Youngkin can add that Ron DeSantis hasn't already done. And DeSantis has also spent a lot of time trying to appeal to conservatives nationally, um, uh, not in ways that I particularly have fondness for, but uh, it has been uh, politically effective, I guess, to some degree when he goes to war against Disney and um, uh, and when he's uh, fought more national cultural battles. Uh, Glenn Youngkin hasn't been doing any of that, and I can't imagine him doing that in his little nice sweater vest or whatever. Um, it's just there's at this late stage, uh, it's a pipe dream. It's a it's a reason for another person to get a talk show three years from now or to build up some kind of war chest. I think he has a really zero chance of of going anywhere with that. The number that is really uh, shocking to me, talking about both Biden and Trump, is that so Trump has a crowded field of people that he's running against. And right now, nationally, he's averaging north of 56 percent. Joe Biden is running against two pretty marginal characters, uh, two people that Democrats themselves don't necessarily love. And he's got 66 percent. Right. It's a non crowded field against the fringe. And he's only polling nationally at about nine percentage points within his own party uh, more than Trump is within his. That, again, is should tell Democrats something that's very, very important and useful that they need to know. Republicans need to know that they do need to consolidate behind, uh, you know, one person per each lane, maybe um, and uh, sooner rather than later. But I can't imagine uh, that the same people who like DeSantis are going to suddenly rally around Mike Pence, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. And and you know, Vivek Ramaswamy's vote, I don't think, is applicable uh, to Chris Christie or wh whatever. So uh, uh, it's really hard to imagine anyone but Trump at this point. Super quick, Megan, I also want to say Joe Biden. Yeah, go ahead now. Well, I was just going to say, I remembered it was the, because uh, the young people are going to be upset about this. It was a letter to the SPL, uh, urging Carlisle Group employees to donate to the SPLC, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Equal Justice Initiative. It wasn't explicitly BLM. So to be precise. The SPLC it is was, basically BLM. I mean, a Southern Poverty exactly, Law Center, yes. is, they've never seen somebody they don't think is a racist unless they happen to be a Democrat. <laughs> yes. And then you're good.
That's the one that labeled yeah. Ben Carson a terrorist or whatever the extremist word was that they labeled on him. But I was, th- I was thinking like the Democrats are looking at Joe Biden like he's he's the only one that asked us to the prom and he's like the biggest nerd in school. He's got the tape between the glasses like he's, his pants are way too high and they're checkered. And there's no like they're waiting for the quarterback to come ask them to the prom. And like the quarterback has left the building. There is it's not happening. Only the nerd wants to go. So they may wind up going to the prom with the nerd. But that that doesn't mean you put on false eyelashes or false anything else. It doesn't mean you put your spanks on to hold everything in. It doesn't mean you get the hottest dress or the highest heels. It doesn't mean you really go out you know, on the hair and makeup. It doesn't mean you have any enthusiasm for the evening whatsoever. And that's the position they're looking because you need enthusiasm in your voting block to win a presidential election. Don't believe me? Ask Hillary Clinton. All right, stand by. When we come back, we've got a butted soundbite that I promised to the audience on Joe Biden and his frequent use of the term boy when referring to African-American men and other racial minorities. So I just want to show you a couple things before we get to the soundbite that I promised. We cut this video. It's not dramatic, but it does show you just here's what I want to talk about. And I hope that the listening audience will go and watch this segment on YouTube. I want to ask you what you feel when you watch this video of Joe Biden coming down the steps of Air Force One from I think it was two days ago. Yesterday. That's yesterday. Him arriving in Michigan. For the listening audience, you can see him going down. He's holding the railing. He's going down the short steps of the Air Force One descending and he stumbles. You can see his his footing. He slips and you can see the jerk, you know, that happens when you when you uh, and he catches himself and keeps going. What do you feel when you watch that, Emily? He walks the way he talks. And I don't say that to be funny. Um, it's it's all on that same level of stumbling. He, he stumbles through sentences and he stumbles physically. And it seems actually almost unremarkable. Like it's the same Joe Biden we see when he's walking to Air Force One across the White House lawn, when he's in front of foreign dignitaries, world leaders, the press corps. It's the same thing, whether he's physically walking or talking, he's he's frail and uh, is in absolutely no position to um, be running a Chick-fil-A franchise, let alone the leader of the free world, let alone the United States of America. It's just, it's tragic. And it's, it's sad for him on a personal level, but it's really sad for us just uh, as Americans. It's really hard to watch. Matt Welsh, I'm scared. I watch it. I'm like, if I saw you come down those stairs and you stumbled, I'd be like, whatever that happens, you know, but with him, you're like, you know, it's like, (laughs) you don't want, I don't want to see the president of the United States embarrassed. I really don't. I, I yeah. don't want to see Joe Biden embarrassed. And it's it's just a matter of time before it happens, before he actually goes down, coming down those stairs or some other stairs. There's only so much the trainers, and by that I mean both the sneakers and the personal trainers, can do to prevent it. And when you fall and hit yourself at this age, bad things always happen. You know, um, My dad went to sit on a, ch- on a bench that wasn't there um, uh, five months ago, and it's been a pretty bad uh, time for him ever since then you look at him and and you have this sort of sense of you know like when you have a friend who's in a band or a comedian and they're not really good and you got to watch them and then like tell them that they're really good or like find a way to talk about it um, and you sort of feel this in this cringe um, building up inside of you um, it's like that because you can see that he is really focused not gonna fall not gonna fall not gonna fall mm-hmm. um, and the entire white house team 
as that Axios report, uh, which is just painful to read, um, uh, is illustrating is that they're just trying not only to have the bad thing not happen, but to have the appearance of the bad thing not show. Um, so they can plausibly say, no, I mean, he's working 17 hour days and he's forging peace and managing our allies with Ukraine or whatever the story is going to be. Um, and uh, it's the look of someone who's like trying to keep it together when it's not together and you feel embarrassed for him. But then you're also like, wait a second, <laughs> this is our country. Um, what people who are kind of uh, a little bit more fit and less like trying to cover up their own deficiencies uh, we're kind of in a, in a long, bad place politically uh, on the national level uh, in this country. Mm -hmm. And he's a, a sign of that. I'm in the same boat as you are. Um, you know, my mom is 82 and I worry about her all the time. She does fall occasionally and it's terrifying. And, uh, you know, I am comforted by the fact that usually the most complex decision she has to make in a day is whether she's going to watch Seinfeld or Gunsmoke reruns. And that's Ooh. good. That's a good thing. <laughs> And it's a tough call. It's a tough call. Um, gun smoke. So rando. But she loves it. Um, he's, you know, the leader of the free world. So it's a lot more fraught. We've got a whole war going on in Ukraine that he's managing uh, to some extent. We could go down the list. The, the here's a here's a story that brings both of these threads together. The the story about his age and the and, and infirmity and the story about his electoral chances and how he's going to motivate people. There was an interesting piece. Um, Let's see. What was this at the intersection? The intersection, Steve, why Trump lost Georgia. It was a very lengthy piece and it 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 says the following. OK, uh, Steve Krakauer, my crack executive producer, got it to me. Uh, the bottom line is that this guy is saying Trump can only win Georgia if he flips enough black voters uh, toward him and more black men in particular. Can he do it? And the thought in this piece is he might he actually might be able to flip enough black male voters in Georgia to win Georgia. I mean, he only lost by 11,000 votes, as we now infamously know from that phone call. Um, he might be able to do it because not only is Joe Biden the nerd at the prom and Trump is anything but nerdy. Um, Joe Biden cannot stop himself from slipping both actually uh, in his feet and his legs and rhetorically when it comes to what is clearly some innate racism in the guy who was born 80 plus years ago. Um, and this is evidenced over and over and over. Just get Victor Davis Hanson on your show and he's got this photographic memory. He could go down the list of every racist thing Joe Biden's ever said. And it's long. It's long. Uh, but as of late, he's really revived an old bad habit of referring to black men and other minority men as boy, boy. Now we know he knows this is wrong because I'll give you just one example. And I'm going to play you another. In 2019, Cory Booker, senator who is black, rebuked Biden for downplaying the use of the word boy to diminish black men. Biden was defending some racist that he managed to do business with by saying he never called me boy. He called me son. And Cory Booker was like, well, that's a dumbass thing to say. The use of the term boy for a white man has a very different implication than it does when used for a black man. We Anybody who's spent two minutes in the United States and knows anything about our history knows this. And he said, Booker later did, that he had had a constructive conversation with Joe Biden about his use of this term, adding, this is about him invoking a terrible power dynamic uh, that he showed a lack of understanding or insensitivity to. 
by invoking this idea that he was called son by white segregationists who, yeah, they see him uh, in him, their son. But of course, the implication is in, in somebody like me, Cory Booker, they see something very different and use a very different term. He wasn't the only one to confront Joe Biden about this. Um, Al Sharpton did, too. And I'm going to show you that confrontation, which happened in 2019 before the Biden presidency. And every soundbite that comes thereafter is post these conversations with Cory Booker and Al Sharpton. Watch. Well, it hurts when you talk about boy. It means something different to us. I do understand the consequence of the word boy. But it wasn't said in any of that context at all. But you understand they would no, no, call no, no, you no, son. No, they no. would never call me son. They no, would no, only no. call me boy. No, but but they call Bob. They call Teddy Kennedy boy. Look, I, as you know, Rev, you know about me in Delaware. I, you know, I came up in that community. I came up in the black church. I came up because that's where we got. That's where we sit down to organize to go out and march. The great artists of our time, representing the groundbreaking legacy of hip hop in America, LLJ Cool J. Uh... By the way, that boy's got, that man's got biceps bigger than my thighs. I think he's been a hell of a new governor in Westmore, I tell you. He's the real deal, and the boy looks like he can still play. (laughs) You want to come and make a speech? Hush up, boy, as my mother would say. You've got a Japanese boy coming over here, and guess what? He won the Masters. He won the Masters. He won the green jacket. I mean, do we need to go to the if Trump did this place? Like, it's very interesting to think about what could happen with the black vote and the feelings on the economy coupled with Biden's obvious racism on the other side, Emily. And it would be even more uh, interesting if the media, I think, would give any oxygen to this in the same way. It's not just about the double standard. It's about the fact that there are real consequences to giving people a pass on all of this stuff. And actually, uh, I'm, I may have been sort of like, eh, if I had just seen one of these clips or the other one of these clips, you know, he's a, he's, he's older, he's from a different generation. Maybe he slips up time and again, um, and afforded him some grace. But when you see the pattern, it's, pretty damning. Uh, and, and if the media gave oxygen to him, the, the pattern that he just demonstrated recently, again, like we're not talking about something five, 10 years ago. These are what people in the business call news hooks. And the news mm-hmm. is not biting on any of these these hooks. Now, of course, new media is going to cover it. Places like this are going to cover it. And so a lot of people will see it in those spaces because they're not paying much attention to the mainstream media anymore. So I think that's powerful. But uh, you know, the, the media is not going to give him him uh, the 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 criticism that he deserves in this case. And uh, I think that's a, a real benefit to him and a, a real sad story about the media. That same feeling that we had, Matt, when he was coming down those stairs and he stumbled, no, the stumble. That's what his staff has every time he speaks, because they know not only is he likely to screw it up, but something like this is more and more likely to come out. It is another big risk for them between now and November 24. We at Reason uh, had a did a video, a little parody video. Remember the uh, uh, the uh, the real man of genius ads? I forget what it even was for, like uh, Budweiser or something. Um, so we did that, but did it for Joe Biden. 
Um, and this is back in like 2008 or nine or seven when he was running as a vice president because we found it hilarious that of all people we're going to appoint Joe Biden, who's been kind of a, a clownish character in American politics for a long time, a successful one. Um, but like he's been sort of a, a punching bag, a, a punchline in American politics. He's been doing this thing the whole time. Look at what he said about Indians working at 7-Eleven. That's not mm -hmm. very cool. Talk about corn pop down at the swimming pool. That's super not so great. Um, you know, telling uh, Barack God, Obama. and uh, and yeah, Barack Obama too. Um, he's the has first, this long the first clean, articulate black man. The right he's the source of that of that meme. Uh, he's been doing this forever. And another thing that I was just noticing, looking at that clip, right? Did you notice the difference between 2019 Joe? And the two years later, yes. Joe, um, yes. like it's Huge. visible, it's visible. That's not so great. Um, you know, every president looks a hell of a lot worse after four or eight years. Everyone gets gray. Everyone gets a bit haggard around the edges. But the thing that's happened to Joe Biden in just two or three years is very, very noticeable. And one thing that you will see over the next few months is a lot of people in the media trying to tell you that's not. What you see there is not happening. And to focus on it is what about is because Donald Trump is bad. Uh, it's going to be a really bad season for journalism, I'm afraid. But they know, they know, Emily, that Carville sought shows they know. And they're faced with a very tough decision now. I know the ABC News Washington Post poll was an outlier showing Trump now up 10 over Biden. But more and more we're seeing polls that show Trump up over Biden and the race tightening in the general uh, in the critical swing states. And even those Trump voters in that poll I was citing a minute ago, the CV CBS poll that said, well, I'm open minded to somebody else. No one's saying that their problems with Donald Trump are that they don't think he can win the general. That's not their objection to him anymore. It used to be. Uh, that was Ron DeSantis's main reason for running. I'll win and he won't. No, the Republicans don't believe that anymore. And I do think it's in large part because what they're seeing happening to Joe Biden, not even to Trump. All right, wait, stand by. There's so many great stories. I, we need a three hour show today. I want to get to you what Andrew Cuomo is now saying about his revisionist history on the pandemic and much, much more. Stay with us. OK, guys, we've got to talk about this covid revisionism. I got some from Trump when I interviewed him, and now we're getting some from Andrew Cuomo. I'm going to take them in reverse order because Andrew Cuomo just made these comments that made my head explode. He's such a liar. He has tried to rebrand himself, just like his loser brother, as some sort of a moderate now. You know, he's like a fair and balanced Democrat. He's trying to reinvent himself and reinvent history and his behavior when it came to the covid lockdowns. And on his podcast, he had CNN's favorite doctor, Leanna Wen, who never saw a lockdown she didn't like or a mask or a vaccine mandate. And they're going over, you know, how reasonable they both were during the pandemic. And he drops this on it. I lived in New York for the entire pandemic, right? It's one of the reasons we left and came to Connecticut, his overreach. But I lived in New York. Um, everything, as it turns out, I know you did too, Matt. Um, everything, as it turns out, it was all voluntary. None of it was mandatory. Okay. All those businesses, they didn't need to close the schools. That wasn't thanks to him. The mask mandates, not his doing. He was just this sort of gentle idea suggestion at the top. Listen to this in SOP 14. 
government had no capacity to enforce any of this. You must wear a mask. Uh, and people wore masks in New York. But if they said, I'm not wearing a mask, there was nothing I could do about it. Uh, you must close your private business. I won't. Well, there was nothing I could really do about it. It was really all voluntary. And it was extraordinary when you think about it that society uh, acted with that uniformity voluntarily. Oh, my God. Can I just tell you one quick story? Just one quick story. So I have a very dear friend who is a single mom who had a dance studio and a company in Manhattan. And she was making it. She really was making it. She had a lot of young girls who were loving her instruction and they they performed at the UN. They performed overseas. Like she was getting a bunch of gigs for these young girls. One of them went off to Princeton, I think it was. Another one got cast in a Scorsese movie. Like these, they were making it. And everything was shut down because of him, because of this man. And it wasn't just my friend. It was a lot of people. This is just one industry. I could, we could go through any one of them. But the dance industry, for one, you weren't allowed to dance during COVID. Couldn't offer in New York State, New York City. You couldn't have a dance studio. It wasn't allowed. And I actually went back and just pulled the New York Times article on some of the complaints in that particular industry, just as one example. And it was talking about how frustrating the existing guidelines were, that they seemed to conflate dance studios with gyms. And gyms had a much longer period in which they were not allowed to open at all. But dance studios were also ordered closed for a period. One studio owner received clearance to reopen from the Department of Health. Another called the Department of Health and was told she could not open her dance studio. Another reopened and was shut down by the city sheriff's office. So what would happen, Andrew Cuomo, if anybody tried to defy your executive orders was the sheriff would show up. People were not free to disregard your vaccine, mask, or business, or school closure mandates. They had to comply. It was not some miraculous hand-holding, let's unify and bow down to the dear leader in Albany moment. And the nerve, Matt, to suggest otherwise on camera, on the record. He, uh, in August of 2021, all right, this is the guy who made his nut uh, in the spring of the pandemic, somehow became the love gov, and everyone was really interested in what he had to say, and he was calming and soothing. He was portrayed as sort of the uh, the uh, anti-Trump or the counterpart to Trump. And uh, so, you know, if we're going to follow the science. We're always going to follow the science, right? Remember that. August of 2021, he was warning that if we open up schools, uh, public schools again, that they might become a super spreader event. We had had a lot of science in between March of 2020 and August of 2021. Uh, we had a lot of examples all around the world of what happens when you open up schools. And it turns out what happens is then the schools are open and the kids can learn and they're not going to based in their own dysfunction and social isolation and have a lot of problems that have, among other things, driven a whole lot of people away from the public school system in the city of New York, like me. Now I'm paying way too much money <laughs> for private schools for my daughter. This is a separate story, maybe, but it's all kind of related. Uh, it's ridiculous, this sense of revisionism. And we're going to see a lot of it because none of that's popular. Um, Gavin Newsom, right? He's the one who said, like, I'm, you know, 
we're going to look back and we're going to uh, see what, and where we went wrong. And, and uh, now that we know a lot more, uh, I actually appreciate the gesture, but I want uh, him to know and everybody else that that's not, doesn't mean that we're going to forget that you put yellow tape on outdoor playgrounds in California in December of 2020, which is absolutely insane, is so counterproductive to every public health thing that we know. Uh, so both of those characters, New York has a special sauce in which uh, because of progressive era, like meaning 20s and 30s uh, governance reforms, no one knows who's in charge of anything. Right. The Somehow the governor is in charge of the subways in New York City. It's just like it's all like weird and doesn't make sense there's these quasi-governmental authorities like the port authority so i'm sure he could hide behind like well it wasn't me who could uh enforce this particular mask mandate it was actually the city but if you're a resident of new york all you know is that governments around you at all times a health inspector can come at any minute and close down your business for any reason you're aware of it you follow the law or the threat of the law. And what that meant in New York was really severe lockdowns, way too severe lockdowns. And we're still climbing out of that. And it's going to take a long time for us to. Yeah, we, we've been covering that what happened with the church out in California. David Zweig's been doing great reporting on this, that that held services, notwithstanding the lockdowns there and the mandates there. And the FBI infiltrated the church and now that church has been forced to pay all these fines pursuant to their state policy. There are enforcement mechanisms. He's lying. He's full of shit. This was not voluntary. People were forced to go along with it by state health authorities and at some level, federal authorities. I pulled some of the New York Times background on this just because I mean, we all lived it. Uh, and here's what here's a New York Times piece. Uh, in recent weeks, the governor has repeatedly made it clear that he believed he had no choice but to seize more control over pandemic policy from state and local public health officials uh, and because he didn't think they understood how to how to force people to comply. Here's another one. State health officials said they often found out about major changes in pandemic policy only after Governor Cuomo announced them at news conferences and then asked them to match their health guidance to the announcements. So that's what would happen. Then the state, state health authorities would issue these mandates or, quote, guidelines that the schools had felt that they had no choice but to comply with, that businesses had to comply with. And then in some cases, law enforcement would run around enforcing on everybody, Emily. And here's one more. Here's one more before you comment on it. I would be remiss if I did not mention my dear friend Janice Dean's, you know, reason for being over the past three years. And that is what he did with the nursing homes. He issued an order on March 25th, 2020, that all New York state nursing homes must accept residents that are medically stable. And it stated, quote, no resident shall be denied readmission or admission to nursing homes because they tested positive or were suspected to have COVID. What it essentially did was render testing of incoming patients inappropriate. And therefore, COVIDs who were her patients who were COVID positive were put into the nursing homes by the thousand. And it led to some 10 to 15,000 deaths of the most vulnerable elderly populations inside these nursing homes. He then went on to lie about the number who died because he knew he had blood on his hands and he didn't want the responsibility. All of this is backed up by the Democrat Attorney General Letitia James. He gave the order. He gave the order. It wasn't voluntary. People are dead because of what he did. And I'm sorry, I realize COVID's over. They're trying to bring it back, but it's over. But accountability is important and calling out these lies is important. 
It's one of the clearest cut examples from the pandemic of a policy that, as you pointed out, was an order, not a voluntary suggestion leading to deaths. You can connect A and B more clearly with Andrew Cuomo than almost this specific policy decision, more clearly than almost any others. It is really the perfect example of COVID evil and incompetence. And on the incompetence point, uh, first of all, the man wrote a book that celebrated his legacy during COVID as the media was celebrating his legacy during COVID. He got taken down by Me Too stuff, not by his grossness management that actually led to deaths during COVID. Uh, He wrote a book because the media allowed him to get away with mismanaging COVID because the media was reporting bad information. They were ideologically driven throughout throughout the pandemic. And again, does a governor get away with having a policy like that, that is actually having life and death consequences for as long as he did without a complicit and incompetent and ideologically compromised media? Absolutely not. So did Andrew Cuomo absolutely lead to life and death consequences? Yes. Did the media's enabling of Andrew Cuomo also have life and death consequences? Absolutely yes. Looking straight at CNN, by the way, who allowed him to get away with all of this stuff, but so did everyone else. Uh, I am fascinated by how what he's saying now is probably in conflict with his own book. He is telling the story. And again, they will get, they will let him get away with it. He will get away with it. There's, there's just, there's no question about it. And that's why he feels comfortable doing it. And that is why the media's idiocy has, again, real life or death consequences. It's not just this abstract conversation about fake news. It actually, like the the bigger conversation is that Andrew Cuomo shouldn't be able to show his face in polite society without apologizing and explaining why his voice still is relevant and legitimate because he learned from the pandemic and made all of these major mistakes. Why should we trust you or care what you say unless you are groveling and saying what you did wrong? Now he's just able to re-enter and talk like it never happened and that he was the hero and he's just going to get away with it. We're not even having the conversation about what it showed in terms of his character and competency. No, when when Janice Dean, who lost both of her in-laws in nursing homes at this very time, went public saying, you gave the order, you did this, you're misleading about the number of deaths, he lied. And there was reportedly correspondence between Andrew Cuomo, then the sitting governor, and his brother, Chris Cuomo, who was still fronting a primetime show on CNN about that weather bitch, Janice Dean, the weather bitch. That's what led me to get a shirt that read, I stand with the weather bitch. F these guys and their revisionist history. They're fucking liars. They're liars. And you're right. They're, they're, I don't know whether he's got some dream of like running again for New York state governor or somehow finding himself on the Democratic ticket if Joe Biden implodes, because that was discussed last time when Biden was running. It's not going to happen. That's I mean, Janice alone will make sure it doesn't happen. But those of us who are paying attention to his history will make sure, too. And for that matter, Trump also Trump also did some revisionist history on what he did on the pandemic in my interview with him, because he senses now this is plutonium in the Republican Party too. what he did with the lockdowns. And I understand you can go back and say, as he did at a different part of the interview, we didn't know it was happening. People were dying. Body bags were, were stacking up in China and here. It was a difficult time. That's one thing to do. But to say you never did it and that you didn't support lockdowns 
is another, and it's also not true. So here's what he said to me in our interview, 27. I asked my audience, what would you like me to ask President Trump? Okay. These are your fans. Okay. This is the number one question they wanted me to ask you, that you shut the country down for six weeks in spring of 2020, Operation Warp Speed. Excuse me. Rushed right? through. I didn't really. Well, let me, let me, I, let me ask no, their no, question. But Megan, this I is let, my audience's I question. The, I got to get I know, it out. But I let the governors shut down. Some did and some didn't. So it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Here he is, uh, March 17th, 2020. Americans to take action for 15 days to help stem the outbreak. So it's a 15-day period. I guess uh, now we'd say it's a 14-day period. We're asking everyone to work at home if possible, postpone unnecessary travel, and limit social gatherings to no more than 10 people. And if we do this right, uh, our country and, and the world, frankly, but our country can be rolling again pretty quickly. April 13th, 2020, he tweeted out the following. For the purpose of creating conflict and confusion, some in the fake news media are saying it is the governor's decision to open up the states, not that of the president of the United States and the federal government. Let it be fully understood that this is incorrect. It is the decision of the president and for many good reasons. Uh, and then he goes on to say, with that being said, the administration and I are working closely with the governors and this will continue a decision by me in conjunction with the governors and input from others will be made shortly. And we could go on. He criticized Sweden for not locking down, saying they were paying heavily. So the revisionism is bipartisan. Emily, or Matt, let me go to Matt on that one. Yeah, the uh, he the two weeks to slow the spread. Um, again, it's in the line of fire. It's in the heat of battle, whatever. Um, one thing that the playbook that both major political parties and their politicians and certainly the CDC uh, tore up. And you could see um, they had a big uh, guidance in 2005, 2006 about what to do in the next big pandemic. And they stressed above all, what you have to do is have very calm information that is factual, including to the level uh, to, of the degree which um, we say what we don't know, right? You don't have a sense of, of false, oh, definitely masks work or definitely they don't. Just tell them what it is and trust people to make good decisions for that. Obviously, Anthony Fauci was not interested in that guidance, um, nor was Trump. Trump, if you remember, he had the daily press conference he was having there for a couple of weeks during the beginning of the pandemic. Trump is not a disaster in any context who is going to be the source of calm, cool, collected, just the facts information. That's just not what he does. He's got other value propositions. Um, he could have receded then, he didn't. It, it stands to reason that he zigged and zagged during the pandemic. He did, for example, a very good thing in my estimation in July of 2020, um, although it backfired politically, when he and Betsy DeVos said, you know what, schools should be open in September. Um, we know enough now where that seems to be true. It's not the virus is not spreading like wildfire among the kids and they're disproportionately, thank God, not affected by this. We should open up the schools, even though it's not the federal government's call. Definitely in that in that case, but they can make recommendations. That was great. And then the Democrats took over the we're not going to follow the science uh, mantle, uh, including, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo issuing a uh, a masking two to four year olds 
order, which stayed in effect until 2022, uh, including people who are going to speech therapy. I have friends who are uh, have gone insane with rage because of just that order. Um, so yes, Trump zig and zag, and it's Trump. He's when called on it, he's going to do a lot, excuse me, uh, and he's not going to cop to it. Um, this is the line that Ron DeSantis has on Donald Trump of attack uh, to chip away at, uh, at his lead, and it would resonate with people. We'll see if DeSantis actually tries to draw blood on that. There's a lot of people, it doesn't take much to scratch into the anger that we all feel about stuff that happened during COVID. Um, so uh, you don't look to politicians to not to start telling the truth all of a sudden, um, but people know what happened. There's, that's the only reason Glenn Youngkin is governor for crying out loud in the state of Virginia. Um, and it really is Ron DeSantis' main selling proposition that he kept his head uh, during a time he was called Death Santis by the media and everybody else at that time. And he said, I don't care what you say, we're going to do this. And most of what he did in that context was correct. Um, Trump zigzagged, he did good, he did bad. Uh, and you know, it's Trump, he's not going to like come at his record in a super honest way. Mm -hmm. No, it is very much to DeSantis's credit that he held the line. He closed Florida for a, basically a month and a couple of small lingering things thereafter. But Florida was open and he's produced a memo he got from the Trump White House Coronavirus Task Force headed by Anthony Fauci as late as I think it was January 21 saying you will mask up. You will issue a mask mandate in Florida. And Ron DeSantis said, no, we're not doing that. So, I mean, not only did he not you know, decide to impose these lockdowns and mandates. He pushed back when others tried to force him. Uh, so, you know, he's got a lot of evidence. It's ridiculous for Trump to support, to attack DeSantis on COVID. He, there's plenty of other things he can he can attack him on. That's just not one. That's not one. Um, I do want to shift to the media, though, Emily, because you've, you've raised it a couple times in the show, rightfully. And they are complicit in all of this. They made Andrew Cuomo a star and Anthony Fauci as well. Um, we all know what they do to any Republican, especially one named Trump. But there was a very interesting piece in The Atlantic uh, just yesterday, 926. And it's titled How We Got Democracy Dies in Darkness, which became the Washington Post's slogan during the Trump years. And anybody who was in the media who wasn't a leftist understood immediately when this came out what a joke it was. Talk to somebody like me and Matt, you know, we're older, um, about how dark democracy was over at the Washington Post when Obama was spewing the lies about if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Uh, I didn't hear much from the Washington Post. In fact, what I heard was them defending Barack Obama. That would later be dubbed the lie of the year by even left wing sources because it got to the point where it was totally undeniable. He had lied and it came out that actually he knew he knew it was untrue and he said it. So the word lie is OK. Um, a deep dive based on Marty Baron, who used to run the Washington Post, his upcoming book uh, about the Washington Post talking, I mean, at length about how they came up with this wonderful slogan, the number of alternative slogans that were bandied about. Bezos had given them their marching orders, Emily. He said, I, I want I, I want it to be both aspirational and disruptive, not a paper I want to subscribe to, but rather an idea I want to belong to. We love this country, so we hold it accountable. They went through slogan after slogan. Months of meetings were held. Frustrations deepened. Outside branding consultants were retained to no avail. Desperation 
led to a long list of options venturing into the inane. The ideas totaled at at least a thousand. A bias for truth. No. A right to know. You have a right to know. Unstoppable journalism. The power is yours. Relentless pursuit of the truth. Facts matter. It's all about America. Spotlight on democracy. Democracy matters. <laughs> a light on the nation. <laughs> democracy lives in light. Democracy takes work. We'll do our part. <laughs> Apparently, they settled on a free people demand to know. And Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, who was a novelist, said, that's a Franken slogan. Too many words. It doesn't work. And then we needed Bezos to take unilateral action. Are you getting the chill up your spine? Are, you, are they getting Ooh. the tinglys yet? Finally, he did. Let's go with democracy dies in darkness, he decreed. It had been on our list from the start. It was a phrase Bezos had used previously in speaking of the Post's mission. He himself had heard it from the Washington Post legend, Bob Woodward, and went on from there. Oh, my God. I've never heard anything so self-aggrandizing and so false <laughs> all in one from a newspaper head. And then The Atlantic is publishing it, too, without any self-reflection. I mean, the Trump era is now in the rearview mirror, and we can look at exactly what the media's failures were. Even the media... Okay, so the Washington Post has a long series right now, uh, basically about how it allowed democracy to suffer in darkness throughout the Russia collusion hoax. Like, they, they actually allowed one of their own journalists, media critics, to go back and look at how they got so many stories wrong Eric as it Wemple. pertained to Russia. like the only yeah. honest man over there. Keep going. Yeah, Eric Wemple did it. Yep, absolutely. And it's it's in its own in their own paper. Uh, and the sad thing is that it's true. Like the the reason you can go back and look at what the framers, the founding fathers, wrote about the importance of a free press, and they didn't have the same mass media neutral press that we got used to in the 20th century. It was pretty partisan. Um, but when mass media came along, they had to appeal to as many people as possible, so they had this sort of neutral stance for the ad money. And that's when we came to this idea that journalists were, you know, just just out there being objective, neutral. And some people really did try for years to do that because you do need a free press to be able to shine. Otherwise, politicians have no incentive to behave uh, and no incentive to do the right thing. So it's absolutely essential. They're right. Democracy does die in darkness. They are time and time and again, the source of the darkness. They are shielding it. They are intentionally. It's not just that they're missing things. They are missing things to continue torturing this metaphor, but they are also shielding things from light actively. They are helping the government censor things. Uh, it, you can look time and again, and there's just absolutely Absolutely. Like the collusion. It's the Missouri v. Biden. I mean, this stuff is like actually in court right now uh, that they were working in concert with big tech and uh, media and the Biden administration. And Joan Didion absolutely skewed Bob Woodward, Woodward in the New York Review of Books in like 1991. It's just like a beautiful thing um, looking at how he was basically allowing democracy to suffer in darkness for years. So it's, it's not new, but the Trump era is what accelerated it, not what solved it. In, in this telling from Marty Baron, and it's staggering, 
staggering because it's so untrue that they are still not reckoning with it. They are sprinting further in the other direction. The media is not getting better. It is getting aggressively worse. And this is a great example of why. Matt, you've got Glenn Kessler over there, the king fact checker who is wrong all the time. Philip Bump, Jennifer Rubin, Jennifer (laughs) Rubin at The Washington Post. Oh, my God. I mean, that's what a joke this once revered paper has become. I'm sorry. It's become a joke. Its circulation is down to record lows. It's absolutely abysmal, both online and in terms of the actual delivery. And I went back just to look at just a couple of my favorites. Um, Here is Washington Post, October 2020. The Hunter Biden laptop could be fake or it could be real. We may never know. (laughs) That was there democracy dies in darkness approach one month before a presidential. We, yeah, we, uh, uh, tomato, tomato. Then by March of 2022, when everybody had verified it, after extensive forensic analysis, the Washington Post was able to determine that some of the data on the laptop appears to be authentic. Some, you know, some, but not all. Eh. Okay, Hunter Biden's literally filing a lawsuit right now saying the whole thing was his and that it's they were wrong to steal it from him and put it, gave it to the papers. Um, so that's just a couple examples. And then let me give you one more. February 17th, 2020. Headline, um, which they then had to revise, but it was Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus fringe theory that scientists have debunked. I'll give you one guess what his fringe debunked theory was about. Do you, do you have any guess, Matt, Wal- Matt, Matt Welsh? What do you have any guess? Uh, something about a lab leak, perhaps? Nailed it. Nailed it. His debunked theory, fringe, uh, was that COVID was somehow connected to research in the disease-ravaged epicenter of Wuhan, China. He referenced a laboratory also in the racist. city. Right. I'm getting to that. But there is, quote, ready for it? No evidence, says the Washington Post. There is no evidence. Where have we heard that phrase recently? Cotton is referring to a well-known lab in Wuhan. Um, Numerous experts dismiss the possibility that the coronavirus may be man-made. This isn't true. They go on to cite some expert, quote unquote, to say it's very harmful. It's very dangerous to stir up suspicion, rumors, and spread them among the people. For one thing, this will create panic. Another is that it will fan up racial discrimination, Emily, xenophobia, and so on. Their expert goes on to say these kinds of conspiracy theories are unhelpful and borderline irresponsible. It's a conspiracy theory, and he's peddling it. So that's our democracy dies in darkness. Let's hold the powerful, accountable newspaper of record, Matt. Yeah, the people can't handle the truth. This is the longstanding idea about a lot of media critics or media thinkers over time is that we have to be so careful. We have to massage. We have to be careful not to platform the wrong people because the consumers are these inert sheep. And if they get the wrong ideas or or even bandy around the wrong theory, they're going to do horrible things. We can't even imagine how bad these sheep-like consumers are going to be activated. What's interesting about Marty Baron as a character in this is that, and this excerpt is from a book, forthcoming book that he has, and maybe they uh, mashed together like a Frankenstein slogan of a book 
talking about the origins of the democracy dies in darkness. And he's sneering. It's like, yeah, Trump thought it was about him, but far from the truth kind of thing. Um, as if it has nothing to do with Trump. We know what you were doing. We know it. All right. It's really obvious. And it was, and it was a source of a lot of, of inter uh, uh, industry snickering and rightfully so, because it was very dramatic and, and kind of silly. The second half of this book excerpt is about how Marty Baron was fighting an increasingly lonely battle within his own newsroom. And in fact, it's why he left earlier than he planned to. Um, he was fighting against people who had gone completely like woke crazy. There's Taylor Lorenz was in there, Felicia Somnez, um, all kinds of uh, interior struggle sessions at the Washington Post. Uh, but he's fighting a lonely battle uh, to hold on to that uh, old timey sense of neutrality and and pursuit, you know, imperfect pursuit of objectivity. He's written quite a lot about this. Uh, and he recognizes that he's outnumbered. He was outnumbered at his own newspaper by the likes of Margaret Sullivan, the very bad uh, press critic uh, over there who now works for The Guardian. <laughs> um, and he doesn't see the connective tissue between the two things, right? You created a slogan, a very dramatic one, that was an idea you could belong to that sounded like you were going to be the rallying cry against Trump. And that's how your newsroom therefore behaved. That is why you lost the objectivity fight. And also, not incidentally, that is why you've lost 500,000 subscribers since Trump left office. If you became essentially an opinion journal magazine, journalism magazine, you became the nation during George W. Bush's presidency. The nation got a yeah. lot of subscribers then. And then Obama won and that, that's over. Um, so you created the pendulum swing. You leaned into the idea that we can belong to. You chose a team. Your newsroom, the younger people who worked there said, great, I love it. Moral clarity at last, despite one of the things that they love to talk about these days. Um, and what happened is the quality of the journalism got worse and they got more obsessed with the idea of who can be platformed and who cannot. They went after, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, the food critic went after the barstool sports guy for his pizza thing. They tried to I get love it. that story. Uh, it's insane. Um, what are you doing here? You're trying to like stir up a boycott against someone because he's not the good person. And you know, don't know what these sheep people are going to be like if they watch his one bite pizza taste test because he might be a racist or something. Uh, <laughs> it is ridiculous. They have created their own problem. Marty Baron was there. He couldn't fight it. Um, and it's amazing to me that he doesn't see the connection between mm -hmm. this thing that he's celebrating and the one thing that he claims to be fighting against. He lost the war. And that's why he's no longer working in mainstream journalism. Was well said. Oh my God, the thing with Dave Portnoy and Barstool Sports is just so epic. And he did such a great job. He did us all a favor by taping that food reporter saying, this is how you get people to respond to you. You have to lie about somebody else. You basically have to defame somebody just so you make it tantalizing for your target to respond to you. No, madam. No, that's not how journalism is performed. You're going to have to go back and check your little rule book. Um, maybe you didn't learn that at Columbia Journalism School, uh, <laughs> but you learn it if you're an actual reporter and you actually go out there and, and work the beat and and write honest stories. And then they used, you know, the, the, the Molly Hemingway of the Federalist, I think, pointed this out, Emily. They used the passive voice in their piece, like uh, when they finally wrote about Dave Portnoy, it was like critics, critics respond to allegations about Dave Portnoy. It was something like so generic, like who you were the one who made the allegations. Nobody else made allegations. You did. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> it's amazing. You like, generated you're a whole fake news story. 
it, it doesn't matter if you're a, a neutral reporter, a conservative reporter, a liberal reporter. Like I actually, my part-time job is National Journalism Center. Like we train students in journalism. And now we can say that this is actually a textbook example of what not to do because I immediately added it to our curriculum for students to listen to Good. the phone call and actually see exactly what you don't do as a reporter. By the way, she knew she was being taped. That's how shameless these people are. Ask. She knew. She knew. She knew. And she didn't care because all that matters at these Beltway cocktail parties is Manhattan whatever book events. All that matters is that you stood up against Dave Portnoy. It doesn't matter if you dropped your journalistic yes. ethics in the process. It's you against him and you have to be against him. That's so right. Whose side are you on? That's all they want to know when hiring at the Washington Post. And it's not just the Post, but the Post has become the worst. I mean, I have to say, I think they're worse than the Times and the Times is bad. But I mean, like there, there's no one to read there now. It's they've compl- at least I can read some Brett Stevens at the New York Times. I do think Eric Wemple, you know, maybe usually I don't want to vouch for all of his journalism, but I've seen quite a few fair pieces from the guy. Uh, I'll just give you a little reminder as we go to break. Uh, Washington Post headlines, March 31st, 2017. Trump campaigns Russia ties. Who's involved? September 8th, 2017. The case for the Trump-Russia collusion. We're getting very, very close. February 17th, 2018. Trump's Russia hoax turns out to be real. No, it doesn't, WAPO. No, it doesn't. More with Matt and Emily right after this quick break. There is a guy named Jonathan Van Ness, who is one of the co-hosts of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and, I don't know, some other shows, too. He co-hosted something with Dylan Mulvaney that was a hot mess. Um, And this guy went on Dax Shepard's popular podcast. Dax Shepard, I like. He calls himself, I think, like like an unapologetic independent, something like that. Um, And he pushed back very gently on the idea of boys being able to participate in girl sports, men participating in women's sports. And Jonathan Van Ness didn't like it. Van Ness is a man who uses they, them pronouns, but also he, him. It's totally clear. (laughs) Sure. Good luck with that. You spend some time talking about Jonathan. Um, And I guess Jonathan didn't really enjoy the conversation because he decided to cry, I guess, to end it, to engender sympathy for him. Uh, because he knew he was losing the argument. Here's a little sample of what happened when he was on Dax's podcast, Armchair Expert, Satin. Do I wish that the trans woman athlete had access and could play and follow her dreams? I do. Will I elevate her rights over women? We're pretending that women aren't the ultimate marginalized class throughout history. People who have written cervix have her. And she goes, no, 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 there's a name for us. You can't steal my identity to help your cause. There isn't legitimate questioning going on. There is like a public targeted onslaught towards queer people. It's a boogeyman to make us feel that our girls are being attacked, that their things are being taken away with fairness in sports. Honestly, I just... I wanted to come like chat about my podcast like other yeah, shows. Yeah, well, like, we're going to do that. This we're going to do that. I did not intend at all to get into a debate with you about this. I didn't want that at all. I adore you. I think you're hysterical and talented. And I love that you're an activist. I could just like cry because I'm like so tired of having 
to like fight for little kids yeah. because they just want to be included. I wish that people were as passionate about little kids being able to like be included or grow up as they were about fictitious women's fairness in sports. I have to tell you, I am very tired. You know what, Jonathan? Same. Same. I'm so tired, too. I'm so tired. I'm tired of having stand-up for my daughter's right to play sports with other girls. I'm tired of having to stand-up for the volleyball player, volleyball player down in North Carolina who got hit so hard in the face that she has permanent damage thanks to a boy who is allowed to play on the girls' team against her, Peyton McNabb. Here's the video, just in case you didn't happen to see it, Jonathan. Watch. Permanent damage to that girl. And we could go down the list. Apparently, Jonathan is too busy dressing other people to realize that there are girls like this across the nation who are having titles taken away from them, scholarship opportunities taken away from them, the joy of winning taken away from them because they're being forced to perform and play against biological boys, against boys. And he goes on in this interview to say, the science we have now says that transgender women Do not hold an unfair biological advantage over cis women. Number one, that's a lie. That's bullshit. Number two, the reason we don't have 10,000 studies is because we can see it with our own eyes and we don't need them. And number two, it's because anytime somebody actually does try to put this science out showing it, they get a shitstorm rained down on them from the very active, abusive trans activist community, Emily. And and that those are the only reasons that you don't have hundreds of studies saying it's obvious. But you don't ha- you don't need that. Look at Leah Thomas in the pool. 38 seconds ahead of his nearest competitor. 38 seconds. This guy wants to go out there and say, I bet you Jonathan Van Ness has never competed in a sport. It seems quite obvious to me. Final 50 yards of the 1650 yard women's freestyle of the 2021 Akron Zippy Invitational. Leah Thomas has no one in the rear view. No one. Because these women couldn't do it. After 15 minutes, Leah Thomas in lane five has lapped every swimmer once and some twice. That's just one example. And I'll just give you one more. Okay, I'll give you one more, Emily. Then this guy has the nerve, has the nerve to use the term trans misogyny. How Mm. dare he? Listen to this. I'm not calling you a transphobe. You cannot be transphobic and still have thoughts that espouse trans misogyny and espouse transphobic ideologies or beliefs and not be transphobic. No, no, you do not get to use that term. Misogyny does not affect or describe any man, a man posing as a woman, any man. Just just for kicks, I went and looked it up. We all know that misogyny means woman hatred. But just here's here's the definition. Hatred of women's women and girls, a form of sexism that is used to keep women at a lower social status than men. He's talking about men, men competing against women, men in women's spaces, trying to say it's misogynistic for women to say no. This is so bass backwards. It's infuriating. He, as a man, has the audacity to smear women women who have these concerns as misogynists and bigots and haters. And it's like the, the, I'm so tired. I'm so tired narrative. Well, you know what? A lot of people are tired. I'm tired of having to talk to moms and grandmothers whose kids are put in horrible, 
unsafe situations and who have their lives permanently altered, in some cases clearly destroyed, at least for now, until they're able to sort of climb out of these horrible dark holes that they're thrust into by this broken culture. I'm tired of talking to people like that. I'm tired of talking to moms, grandmothers, dads who have had their children in situations like that. And so it's this weaponization of his uh, his exhaustion as though we can't have this conversation. Dax, you can't raise what you rightfully uh, referred to, Megan, as a mild the most mild form of criticism of this movement, which, by the way, when Jonathan Van Ness says, oh, you know, I am just, uh, I wish people had the same amount of energy for protecting kids that they have about these fake stories, which are obviously not fake, but I wish, I just wish people had that energy. Well, you know what? People did have that energy about, quote unquote, protecting kids uh, because it, they bulldozed our culture. For just quickly, in a matter of months. I mean, if you look at the time the Obama administration sent their dear colleague letter to how this completely consumed our culture, it happened in a matter of months because people did have the energy to protect kids. And guess what? It didn't protect every kid. We ran the experiment. People realized that it was wrong and that children were guinea pigs in the process. And Jonathan Van Ness, I think, genuinely doesn't realize that the science that he claims is capital S science is wrong because the media spreads that science. The media tells people that those stories are fake. The media tells people that that so-called science is real. I mean, it's just, it's so, like you said, Megan, it's completely backwards. It's offensive. And Dak Shepard was right. It is one thing that he injected into that conversation that we never hear is that this is very specifically, very specifically undercutting the advances that women have made. And women have historically uh, suffered misogyny and sexism. They're probably going to change that definition in the dictionary because we live in 1984 after you highlighted it. But seriously, this is is, men do not have. It's just amazing the audacity that men have to inject themselves as the victims in these stories. Oh, my God. How dare he? How dare he use the term misogyny in referring to women standing up for women and girls trying to keep men out of our spaces? It's a no, sir. I don't care how often you cry in your soup. I'll make you cry all day long. We'll be doing this for years. I couldn't give a shit how upset you are about these imaginary kids you're referring to. By the way, the littles are allowed to play against one another. It's post-puberty that it becomes a problem, which is documented by documented by the science trademark. Then he goes on, Matt, and actually tells more lies. This one about Leah Thomas. Listen to SOT 25. Even if you look at the very limited number of trans people who have been allowed to play around elite sport or elite competition, if you take like Leah Thomas, for instance, none of her numbers were record setting. None of her height, weight measurements were out of portion in all of the pictures on the podium where they're like, look at how much bigger she is. If you take her and look at an Olympic level, she wasn't outside of the realm of possibility for someone who was assigned female at birth. All right. He's an idiot. This guy's an idiot. He's an a factual idiot. Let me just give you a couple. OK, a couple. February 2020. Leah Thomas won the 200-yard freestyle race at the Ivy League Women's Swimming and Diving Championships in a minute and 43-12 seconds, uh, setting a new Ivy record. Hello, Jonathan. Record. A new Ivy record. A woman's record. March 2022. Thomas is now an Ivy League champion in women's swimming after winning the 500-yard freestyle event with a time of 4.37.32. Her time is the fastest ever recorded at Harvard University's Blodgett Pool. Fastest time recorded. That's a record, Jonathan, in women's swimming. December 2021 at Akron Zippy Invitational. Won the 200-yard freestyle with a time of 141.93, a time that was good enough to set, wait for it, school, pool, 
and program records and marked the fastest in the nation. Congratulations, sir. You're now the fastest woman in America. And this idiot goes on with Dax Shepard, who I believe is an honest broker, but wasn't prepared for these lies and spews a bunch of bullshit with his tears to try to pull the sympathy away from the women whose opportunities were denied and championships were denied and put it towards this guy who we know from his social media posts is an autogonophile who was getting off, meaning he was turned on by wearing women's swimsuits amidst the ladies. And they're going to have to deal with him getting off in the women's locker room while they're running to change in some closet so that he couldn't look at them and he they could didn't have to participate in his sexual fetish. Matt, I've had it. I invite people to think about the rhetorical two-step that was used in this case, because we see it in a lot of places. It's not just in sort of trans issues spaces. A lot of activism does this too. First step, call you a fill-in-the-blank ist or a fill-in-the-blank foe. Uh, it could be homophobe, it could be racist, it could be some some kind of bigot. Second step, when that fails, if that fails, is to do the I am so tired from doing the work. I am emotionally exhausted. I might cry or I might not. That's It's actually... A tactic. There's a, a thing in the legal realm, as Megan Kelly knows well, being a lawyer, um, called strategic lawsuits against public participation. Slapped with two P's for short. It's what usually corporations do, but sometimes rich people do. They will file kind of a nuisance lawsuit against a critic. Um, and in many states, I think majority by now, there are statutes, anti-slap statutes, because they can see this rightly. They're trying to sue their critics away, right? I see, and I've seen this for now for five or 10 years, activists do this in a lot of realms, uh, in my realm in New York City, in school equity policies. If you object to it, like a normal person might object to it, they will call you a fill in the blankest. Sometimes it's a racist. And if you are not a public figure, that is a heavy accusation. You will shy away from participating in public discussions because you don't want to be called a racist. If you power through it anyways, you will get the tears and the I am so tired. They are trying to get you to not participate and to not voice objections. Recognize it for what it is and plow through it. I was joking in repeating his language. I'm so tired. The truth is I'm not tired at all. I am completely energized for this fight. It's on. I don't care how much you cry or whine or spew bullshit. I will be here. So will these guys. And so will millions of Americans over almost, I think it's over 70% of which, according to the latest poll, who are on our side about keeping men and boys out of women's and girls' sports. Again, it's a no. Matt, Emily, thank you. Very spicy two hours. Really loved today's discussion. And uh, appreciate you both being here tomorrow. We will break down all the storylines from tonight's big GOP debate. See you then. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.